Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to get to be together to worship God and open His Word together to see what He might be saying to us this morning. As Brandon said, as we continue our journey through the minor prophets and uh, God's Word to His people. So you are going to want a Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, go on and open up to the book of Zechariah. If you need a Bible, slip up a hand. We have some people walking around with Bibles, so get a Bible in your hand. And hopefully, uh, on your way in, you got one of these timeline pages. If you didn't, uh, they can give you one of those as well. We need one up here in the front, uh, Rodney. And then, uh, and so that way you can follow along. Just so you know, as Brandon says, Zechariah is a pretty intense and uh, uh, robust book of the Bible. And so there is no way that this morning, and don't worry, this morning we are not going to try to teach the whole of Zechariah. I'm going to actually give you a pretty broad overview and hopefully apply it in uh, a way that we can see what God might be doing in our lives and in our church in the world today uh, as we look at what God was doing in his people uh, at that time. So today is actually a really special day for us. Today is my daughter Eden's 18th birthday. So yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, she um, is, I guess, officially an adult now. I mean, she can buy a lottery ticket, so I guess that's a... Uh, and vote, that's important. And, uh, and she, uh, but yeah, turned 18. Actually, earlier this week, we were over in Mississippi for her uh, college orientation, uh, her freshman orientation. So my dad heart is in a very tender place right now. Um, but uh, just so proud of her and so excited for her in this next season of launching her into to what God has for her next. So we... So we are celebrating her today and this week. Uh, but, uh, but I was thinking about, um, about when we, she was born. So she was our first. And uh, so 18 years ago, there was a, a moment in which uh, Sadie had been pregnant for just a couple months. And uh, she woke up in the middle of the night and she was bleeding and, and scared. And so uh, we, we rushed to the emergency room weren't sure what was happening, just uh, didn't know what was going on. And, uh, and I can remember uh, just sitting there in, in that hospital waiting room and just begging God for the life of this baby. And at the point, we didn't even know if it was a boy or a girl. We just knew we were pregnant. And, uh, and, and, just, uh, and I remember Jody, Buddy's wife. Buddy was my mentor and the pastor of, of Grace, or, or was. And uh, Jody came. It was like 3 in the morning and just came and sat with us as we just waited and just prayed, God, please. And then even as they took us back into, uh, the, into our little room and waiting for the nurse to come with her little machine to try to listen for that heartbeat and just begging, God, please let this baby be okay. Please let this baby be okay. And I don't think I've ever heard a more beautiful sound than when he put that on her belly and we heard that fast little heartbeat that was strong, and a doctor looked at Sadie and said, your baby's okay. And so here we are 18 years later in this precious life that we're launching into, into adulthood, into this next season. And I was thinking about all that's been going on in the last few weeks in our country and, and thinking about that moment uh, for us with Eden. And um, for us in, in that space, that little baby wasn't a statistic, it wasn't a number, it wasn't a law or a policy. It was our child. I've also sat with families who didn't hear the heartbeat in that moment and put two little coffins, or two small coffins in the ground. And those babies had names and were precious. And... I've also sat with men and with women that are dealing with the anguish and the pain, the grief and the shame that they've carried for decades and years because of decisions and choices that they'd made in their life. I've also wrestled with families as they're making really, really hard decisions or in really, really difficult circumstances. And so as a church, we celebrate that any move towards the protection of life. And, uh, and we are a church that believes. I know that my role as a pastor, as I was praying about even this morning, my role as a pastor is pretty simple. It's to keep 
looking to the Bible and to keep pointing us to Jesus. And what we see in the Bible is really clear, that God blesses life. Psalm 139, that God knit us together in our mother's womb, that knew every day of our life before one of them would come to pass, that every life, born and unborn, is precious to God. And so we celebrate any move towards the protection of life. But we're also a church that honors all of life, of mothers that find themselves in incredibly difficult circumstances, of people that are are vulnerable, that feel like they have no voice, that feel helpless or lost or find themselves victims to horrible, atrocious circumstances. And so as a church, we stand with mothers and with families. And so as a church, we're going to continue to support and to advocate for our local pregnancy resource center. Whereas as a church, we're going to continue to support and advocate for caring for foster families and those of you who do foster in our foster agencies. As a church, we're going to continue to support and advocate those who are moved to adopt and to surround those in the adoption process, both here in uh, our nation and around the world. We're also going to pray for those women who find themselves in difficult, confusing circumstances and situations, who believe there is no path forward, that there is no hope, and that there is no help, that Jesus sees them and knows them, and loves them. We also want to be a place that is safe for honest conversations and healing and grace for those who carry grief and shame, hurt and lament, loss and struggle, those who deal with anger and animosity. And my biggest prayer for us as a church is that when we look at everything going on in the world, the country around us, that we wouldn't see parties or positions, we would see people made in the image of God, loved by God, who may or may not agree or disagree with you. But God, Jesus, who tells us to bless those who curse us, to bless those who persecute us, that we would be a people that love all people, wherever they find themselves, in whatever situation or circumstance. And we celebrate and we move towards life. Amen? So I want to pray for our nation. I know there's a lot of churches this morning, some of our Grace campuses that are in more contentious areas of the country, in D.C. or in downtown Atlanta, uh, and uh, that we would be people of Jesus, people of the gospel, of grace and love, uh, and we would point to life, all of life, born and unborn. And so if you'll pray with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do, we thank you that you are the creator of life. God, we thank you that when you look at every one of us, you see your sons and your daughters made in your image. We thank you for every baby being knit together, formed in your image. And Lord, we honor you. God, we thank you for the answered prayers, for the ways that you... uh, that you protect, that you are for the vulnerable. And so, Lord, will you give us wisdom as a congregation how to be a place of grace and love, a place of healing and hope for our community, for moms who feel forgotten or lost, for families that feel torn apart or struggling, for men that don't know their place, find themselves confused or in darkness. Lord, we pray the move of your Holy Spirit, the love of Jesus Christ, the power of God that would flow through our, in our hearts and our lives and out into this world. God, we pray for our nation to heal some of the division and the, the animosity that we could see the human even behind all of the angst and the anger. May you give us those kind of eyes, your eyes, for all people. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so with that, this message of hope and healing, we get into Zechariah and, uh, and God's prophets who speak God's word to God's people in all kinds of difficult, tumultuous circumstances. And so I'm going to kind of give like a, a, 
a brief overview, a history. Some of you, uh, you, you Bible nerds are going to geek out on this. Some of you are like, please just give me a spiritual nugget that I can chew on and take home with me. So we'll try to do both of that. Uh, I know we will not get as far into Zechariah as I would like, but hopefully we can get a sense of, of what the prophet was doing, what God was doing through that prophet. But quite simply, if we're going to sum up the whole book, it is simply this. You can trust God. You can trust God. You can trust God in your immediate circumstances, as confusing or chaotic or painful as they might be. You can trust God for the future, as hopeless or stuck or dark that it might seem. You can trust God. And so Zechariah is actually divided into two parts. You get the first uh, eight chapters, that was uh, God's word to Zechariah when he was a young man. It's actually a series of eight visions or eight dreams that he had over the course of one night. The second half of Zechariah was written later on in his life, and uh, the first dreams and visions dealt more with what the people of God were facing in their immediate circumstances. The later visions are more about uh, a longer-term uh, picture or prophetic uh, yeah, a prophetic word that God was giving for his people uh, in, the, in the far off, distant future. But in both of them, the word of God remains the same. You can trust me. You can trust me. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, this isn't just a, an ancient word that applied back then. This is a living word that applies right now. You can trust God with whatever you're facing. If you feel stuck or alone or lost, If the future seems bleak or hopeless, God is right there with you. And he's still speaking his word, living and active in our world today. On that one side of your page, I'm trying to find mine right here, uh, you'll see a timeline. Now this summer may be a little bit confusing because... Uh, the way we're intentionally teaching it is that teach, different teaching pastors from different campuses are coming in and, uh, and, and each taking a different prophet. And so it's not, we're not necessarily teaching it chronologically, um, although so far here in Monroe it has just happened to work out that way. So I want to kind of just give you sort of where does Zechariah find himself? What is the context in which uh, he's pre, or he's, it, God's word is coming? Because I think we might find it applicable to our world today. If you remember, this timeline begins in the time of Saul and David and Solomon, Israel's kings that were meant to to unite the people under the the authority of God, Yahweh, as worshipers of the one true God, as a light to the nations. In other words, that the rest of the world would look at this kingdom of Israel, this kingdom of God, and would get a glimpse of how good and powerful and true the God of Israel is. A light to the nations. And sure enough, God appointed this King David, who is a man after God's own heart. Now David, even as a king, is a, is a man of, of failures and flaws himself. He's an imperfect king, but he's a man whose heart was always turned towards God. And so God's king, David, united the people, restored worship of God, And he passes that on to his son Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And under Solomon, the kingdom of God expanded. It was the the most secure and stable that that people had ever been. Built the temple, the place that God's presence dwelled with his people. That place of worship, that display of God's glory. But just like so many of us, as Solomon grew older and richer, he also grew lazier and more apathetic. And his heart began to turn after other gods and no longer worship the God of Israel, Yahweh, but instead to worship other gods, to create alliances with other nations, putting his faith and trust in man and not in God. And sure enough, the consequence of of Solomon's uh, failures didn't show up in his lifetime, but it sure showed up in the next generation. His two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, uh, fought against each other and fractured the nation of Israel into two parts. The northern tribes that will from that point on be called Israel. That's a little bit confusing. And then Judah, the southern tribe, whose capital was Jerusalem, where the temple of God dwelled. The nation of Israel 
was the first to really turn their back on God, to worship other gods, to to lift up idols, to oppress the marginalized and the poor, to, to only care for themselves at the exclusion of the people around them. And so God let them experience the consequences of their decisions. He does the same thing in our lives. And as they wandered away from God and His protection and His provision and began to trust and rely on other things and other people, the, the shakiness of their foundation quickly got exposed. An empire named Assyria comes in and conquers the people of Israel, decimates the people of Israel and puts them in exile, simply meaning takes them from their homes and disperses them throughout the nations. So now there's people that were meant to have a land and a place with a God and the temple and His presence to be a display to the world are now scattered throughout the world without a land, seemingly without a God, without His presence with them alone, lost, scattered and scared. Judah, under the king Hezekiah, remains faithful for a time. And it says that Assyria pushes to the edges of their borders, to the edges of Jerusalem, and through a miraculous intervention of God, they defeat the Assyrians at their uh, city walls, and they're spared for a few more years. Unfortunately, Hezekiah's son falls into the same trap of running away from God and running after other things. And so sure enough, Eventually, the Assyrians are overtaken by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in, they conquer Assyria, and then they end up conquering all of the rest of Judah, even more devastating than the Assyrians were. So all of Judah is now in exile, taken from their homes, taken from their land, taken from the the temple is torn down, the walls are burned with fire, and now all of God's people are left to wonder, did God give up on us? And I just wonder, how many of us live like we're in exile? How many of us live in a place that we look at the world and the chaos and the confusion and the darkness and the despair, and we wake up in the middle of the night with all of our own fears and our anxieties, and we've built our little empires on really shaky foundations, and we put our hope and our trust in really shaky things. A time comes, though, the prophet Jeremiah, early in that period of exile, tells them that it's going to last about 70 years. And sure enough, about 70 years later, another empire emerges, the Persians. And under the Persians, the Persians come in and they, uh, they conquer the Babylonians. I think there's an important lesson here, and this is it. Eventually, every empire falls. Every empire, human-made, eventually will fall. There is no nation, there is no political party, there is no no economic system that will last forever. There is only one unshakable kingdom, and that's the kingdom of God. And there is only one true eternal king, and that is Jesus Christ. And if we build our hope and our lives on any other foundation... Now, I'll say this. like I grew up going to the laser show all summer long, and I would stand up Next to you. (laughs) And when Bruce Springsteen comes on, there's a tear that comes to my eye. I'm as patriotic as the rest of them, but I do know this, that there will be one day that the United States of America isn't an empire anymore. Because what have we learned from history? Eventually every empire falls. And there is no president that stays in power forever. I don't care what side of the aisle that you're on. And if if we fly any flag over Jesus Christ and his kingdom, then we are building our lives on a really shaky foundation. And so sure enough, the Persians come in who beat the Babylonians, the Babylonians have come in who beat the Assyrians, Assyrians come in, they beat the Israelites and the Egyptians, and these were massive superpowers in their day. But the Persians come in and they've got a different mindset. Actually, uh, God is working in the palaces of Persia. You get books like Daniel that give us indication that God has kind of planted his secret people in places of power. And the Persians have a different way of doing things. Instead of removing the people from the land, they allow the people to go back to the land. And the Persian king gives permission for the people of God to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city, to rebuild their temple, to rebuild the walls. That's where you get Ezra and Nehemiah. Through all of this, the prophets are continuing to speak. Stay faithful to your God. He has not given up on you. Return to your God. Trust in your God. Not in these nations, not in these powers, not in yourselves. 
Listen to me. Follow me. I am still for you, and I am with you. Do not be afraid. And so Zechariah finds himself in this group of prophets where they, they are beginning, the, the, people, the, the Israelites are beginning to return back to the devastation of their homeland. They're discovering what their new normal is, so to speak. And so as they, they make their way back, it says, if actually you want to write in your... Um, well, let me read this first. In the eighth month, so you know I'm not just making this up, it's actually in the Bible. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word, and Darius is the, uh, is the king of Persia, uh, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So pausing right there, if in your Bible you want to write this down, in the eighth month in the second year of Darius is actually approximately October of 520 B.C. I tell you that because sometimes we can get in our head that the, the biblical texts are this sort of vague mythology out there. But no, this is a real people in a real place at a real time. So in October of 520, God speaks to the prophet Zechariah. Now at that time, Zechariah was just a young man. We think he was probably uh, um, just a boy. If you want to circle, the, he's the grandson of Iddo. If you want to write Nehemiah 12.4, what we find is that Iddo is one of the original priests that leaves Babylon to go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the temple. So Zechariah is his grandson. And there's a, a, a series of phrases in these first three chapters that really gives us the outline of the entire book of Zechariah, or gives us the, the context of the entire book. And it's punctuated by this name, the Lord of hosts. Three times, the Lord of hosts, or actually four times in three parts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. What it means, Yahweh, the Lord of God's armies, the Lord of the masses, the Lord of power. And nowhere else in the Bible is it punctuated this way with that name. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers. They did not hear or pay attention. Return to me, says God. Even Zechariah's name carries with it prophetic uh, wait. The name Zechariah means the Lord Yahweh remembers. It may feel like everything is lost. It may feel like everything is forgotten. It may feel like everything is hopeless. But God remembers. And God shows up and calls this young boy to be a messenger for God's people. Let's go down to verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, if you geek out on some of that, that's February 15th, 519, approximately. 519 B.C., just to clarify. February 15th, uh, which is in the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, so just a few months later, uh, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. And I think he's about 18 years old. And uh, God's going to give him a series of these eight dreams, or eight visions, over the course of one night. Those eight dreams are pertaining to the circumstances, the situation that Zechariah or that God's people are in at that point. Now, like your dreams, uh, they're a little bit wacky. There's all kinds of images and symbols, and, uh, and some of which don't make sense, and some of which we can find, or we can, we can, um, we can find meaning <clears throat> and, and uh, make sense of. So, for example the woman in a basket with a lead weight that's carried off by two other women with stork wings? No idea. You tell me. <laughs> We're not going to get into the nuances of all of Zechariah's visions, but we can kind of glean out sort of where Zechariah was going. And I say this every week, but I'll say it again, is that way more important than anything I have to say from up here is what God wants to speak to you through his word. 
And so dive into Zechariah this week. I try to give you some resources to help you kind of structure and understand it a little bit. But just read it. Ask God, God, what are you saying? What are you doing? This seems crazy. This is, doesn't make sense. That's okay, because it is a little crazy and it doesn't all make sense. But in essence, we get these, uh, these eight dreams. Uh, there, if you remember, those of you that were with us as we studied Genesis, the, the form of chiasm. Does anyone remember? Somebody super stoked about talking about chiasms again? So basically, it's a biblical structure where uh, you have a, a word, say, uh, say word A, not word or sentence, phrase, picture, uh, metaphor, story, A, and then you have B and C, and then you have B that parallels this B, and then you have A that parallels this A. Is that confusing enough? And really, the essence of chiasm is what's at the center, what's in the middle of the chiasm. These eight dreams are actually in a form of a chiasm. The, the first and the last dream, the first one deals with four horses. The, the, the last dream is four chariots, both of which are going throughout the whole of earth and crying out, peace is here, peace is here. These four horsemen that symbolize God who sees everything, who dwells everywhere, is announcing for Zechariah in his day, I have made a way of peace for you. I am with you. I see you. The 70 years has come to a completion. I'm doing a new thing. The next, the next dreams uh, you have in 1.18.20, the dream of four horns and four craftsmen or blacksmiths. That's paralleled in chapter 5 by the woman I was talking about in a basket. Those four horns, actually it's not horns like on your head, but horns like a trumpet, represent, uh, represent kings. And the four blacksmiths would be the, the, the kingdom of Persia. The first four horns scatter the people of Israel, and then the four blacksmiths come up and scatter those kings. In other words, in all of the chaos, in all of the, the scattering, God is at work. And these reflections on Israel's past sin and exile, and I made a joke about the woman being carried off, but very clearly we see this woman that represents the sin of the people being carried off into exile. And God saying, I know what you've been through. And I see the sin that you have carried, and I see the punishment that you have endured. Followed up in chapter 2 by a man standing with a measuring line, this symbol of rebuilding a new Jerusalem that will be a, a beacon for the nations, paralleled in chapter 5 by this giant flying scroll that makes its way around the city of God and snatches up liars and thieves. In other words, that in this new Jerusalem there is no place for the evil of the past. There's no place for deceit. There's no place for, uh, for, for, for destruction or deception or tearing apart. That God is doing a new thing or wants to do a new thing in this new city that he's rebuilding in this time of peace following this time of sin and exile. And then right in the middle of that, in chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4, chapter 3, this dream of Joshua the high priest. We'll look at that in a little more detail here in just a second. Who was actually a real high priest, but whose name Joshua, Jeshua, is also the name Jesus, whose name means salvation. Who, is something, who symbolizes something significant happening in their day, and they had no clue but what he was picturing that was one day to come followed by the dream of Zerubbabel, the, the governor, the king of the land, this priest and this king side by side rebuilding the city of God for his people. At the end of chapter 2, this picture of a new Jerusalem that's being built in Zechariah's day, a word of hope to the people that have been scattered and exiled, who live in fear with a poverty mentality, wondering who the next, where the next disaster or defeat is coming from, one step forward, two steps back. And God says, sing and rejoice. Chapter, 10, verse, chapter 2, verse 10. O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst. God who wants a relationship with his people, not God far off. I will be with you. I will be in you, declares the Lord. 
and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. God was doing something then, but it was only a glimpse of what God would one day do. If you want to write down next to that, Acts chapter 2, when God would gather the people from all over the world around the true high, high priest Joshua, Jeshua, who is Jesus. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Go to chapter 3. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen, who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this my brand plucked from the fire or saved from being burned up? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Now apply this, think about this in the context of the Joshua, the high priest that was literally there trying to rebuild Jerusalem, but even more so what God was giving a symbolic picture of, of Jesus, who would be our true high priest. God clothing Joshua with these filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This high priestly figure who's clothed with the sin of the people that God removes to clothe with righteousness to reign above his people. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. In other words, Joshua, if you remain faithful, God will remain faithful to you. All of these things can happen. The rebuilding of the temple, God dwelling with his people in their city, the flying scroll that's removing the, any hint of sin. If you remain faithful, this is still dependent upon the obedience of the people. And what we find is it's not enough. Eventually, once Zechariah is gone and that generation dies out, the people will again rebel from God. The 400 years of silence, God will not speak to his people until one day, one who would come, a true high priest, God in the flesh, also named Joshua or Jesus, his name means salvation who would carry the sin of his people and take it to the cross, that God's people could be one day finally fully restored back into relationship and God could truly forever dwell with his people in relationship. But they're only getting a glimpse of that right here. They're holding on to the word that they have for their time. They have no clue what it means for what God's going to do next. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, or sorry, let's go back. Here now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they, are, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And one day that would come on a hill called Calvary when that high priest would hang from a cross clothed with the sin of humanity. But God couldn't be contained or couldn't be brought down by the sin of mankind and would three days later rise from the dead proving that in fact this high priest was the true king. picture of Zerubbabel, the one that would build the foundation of the house. I'm going to pause there for a second. Kind of give you a sort of a side note here. I don't have time to get into the rest of the, the back half of the book of Zechariah, but I will say that what God is giving Zechariah is a picture of the, of the, the day of the Lord to come which was partially fulfilled when Jesus Christ walked this earth, went to the cross, and rose again from the dead. But we still live in a world defined by sin. In the book of Revelation, that gives us a picture of Jesus to one day finally come back 
to restore all things, to wipe away every tear. Well, there will be no more sin and no more death. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? And so I encourage you as you read Zechariah to read it through three lenses. This is why the prophets can be so confusing. One is reading it through the lens of what was God saying to his people at that time. What did he want them to know? The second is what did God fulfill in Jesus that they didn't understand yet, but we can look back. Zechariah, apart from Isaiah, is the most messianic book in the entire Bible. It talks about a a, a pierced shepherd rejected by the people who would reign as king. It would bring together the picture of the priest and the king and give a picture of a priestly king that would reign forever. This branch that can never be destroyed. So as you read Zechariah, look for these pictures of Jesus. And we see throughout the gospel, quote over and over again, lines from Zechariah as they're looking back and going, oh, that's what God was talking about. We didn't see it then. I imagine Paul on the road to Damascus devoted his whole life to knowing the law and the prophets. And now, once he encounters Jesus, looking back at all of it and going, that's what it was all about. The third is this, that Jesus hasn't finally fulfilled all of his promises and all of his words. Jesus is still coming back for his people, to restore for his people a new heaven and a new earth. And so even as you read Zechariah, look for in it the language of revelation, the language of, of the day of the Lord to come. But what I wanted to end with is why this story or why this prophecy is so powerful or so personal in my life and also in the life of this church. Many of you know this story if you've been a part of Grace Monroe for any period of time. But the reason that we are sitting in this building right now partially comes from this word that God spoke to Zechariah thousands of years ago. And where it comes is from 10 years ago, almost to this day, on July 3rd in 2012, uh, Sadie and I were praying about whether or not to, uh, to help pastor this fledgling church plant called Grace Monroe. And so at the time, I would just drive out to Monroe and walk around town in a very different place, a very different environment in downtown Monroe at the time, but would just walk around the neighborhoods and the community and just pray and asked God for a word. God was beginning to stir some things up. Some really beautiful things were happening. Met some incredible people that were doing some good work. And the sense we had was that there was something that was in the soil that God was doing that was just waiting to emerge. That something God had planted something beautiful in the soil of this place that he wanted to display his, uh, his goodness and his grace. And so as I walked around and I was just praying, I passed this old abandoned elementary school was run down and vandalized and uh, broken into, gutted and just in terrible shape. Awful looking building. But there's this huge oak tree out in front of it. And under this oak tree, I stopped and I picked up an acorn. And as clear as day, I felt I heard God say, don't despise small beginnings. As I put that acorn in my pocket, took a picture of that tree and, uh, and kept on walking and praying. For me, that word was just simply a word of encouragement for where we were. Because I was driving back and forth from Grace Snellville to Grace Monroe. Grace Snellville with 3,000 people and amazing worship and all kinds of ministry. And we were involved in 14 different high schools. And I mean, just big and glorious. I could make one announcement and have 100 guys show up to go do whatever. It was huge. Then I would drive out to Monroe and it was 20 of us sitting in an old abandoned warehouse. And I would ask God, what are you doing? Why am I here? Is this even worth it? And I held on to the acorn. I actually kept that acorn in my truck for the first couple years that we were in Monroe. I had told the story at the 9 o'clock. I don't know if I've ever told this part of the story. But in January, when we were really praying about whether or not we move, uh, about six months later, and looking at buying a house that was kind of run down uh, in a rough part of town, and uh, and just really struggling with, what is this right? Are you doing anything? It doesn't feel like anything's happening. And uh, it was Watch Week at Grace Snellville, and they had turned one of the prayer rooms into, I mean, uh, one of the rooms into a prayer room. And I was just on my knees praying in that room, and it was, there's scriptures all over the wall, and it was really beautiful. And just begging God, God, what are you doing? Is this right? Are we doing the right thing? And I've actually found it in my journal. Uh, praying in the room, and I look over, and in the corner of the room, laying against the wall, guess what was there? An acorn. 
It's like God had planted that right there just to be like, don't give up. Don't despise small beginnings. You don't know what I'm doing yet. And so, like I said, I held on to that word. Time would pass, years would go by, and I honestly forgot about the acorn. And at that point, Grace Monroe was starting to grow. Beautiful ministry was happening. Kids were getting, uh, coming to Jesus and getting baptized. And we're starting to get groups going, starting to uh, outgrow our kids' space and, and asking the question, what's next? God, what do you have for us? What's next? And uh, do you still want us at the mill? You know, wh- where do we go from here? And one of our elders at the time, a guy named Kyle, had just moved on to Bold Springs. And um, he was like, you know, what if we go look at that old elementary school? And I told him, that's a terrible idea. That's an ugly school. It's in awful shape. I mean, it's a, there's no way. But uh, he was like, well, let's just go look at it. So again, walking and praying seems to be two good things to do. And so we walk over here, and we walk up to that, that oak tree. And I hadn't thought about it in years. And I go, oh, it's the acorn tree. And Kyle goes, yeah, it's an oak tree. <laughs> They all have acorns. And I was like, no, 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 I mean the acorn tree. And so at that point, it like changed the perspective. All right, maybe, God, you're doing something here. And so, uh, and so we continued to pray. And, um, and at that time, it was about December, I brought my old mentor, Buddy, who uh, would pass away a few months later. Actually, one of the last conversations I had with Buddy was walking around this property. And we were up on the hill over here and asked him, I was like, do you think we should do this? And he said, yes. Absolutely. And then he said, and it's so random. At the time, I thought it was just the most random comment. He goes, uh, he goes, y'all need to get this property before Pentecost, which is in May. And I was like, okay, <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll try. And uh, sure enough, Pentecost comes, and it was the Friday of Pentecost that we had actually signed the contract for this property. God miraculously raised all the funds that we were able to purchase it debt-free, and uh, we began the process of renovation in this space. When we were driving at Pentecost, we go and celebrate what God's doing and planting churches. And at the time, we just planted Grace Marietta. And we were driving to Grace Marietta for the Pentecost celebration that Sunday night. And I'm with Sadie, and I was kind of reliving the story of the acorn. And that phrase, isn't that so cool? That what I thought was a word for the moment and an encouragement for that season was actually a prophetic picture of what God was going to do years later. And she said, yeah. Isn't that an amazing verse? And I said, verse? I didn't even know it was in the Bible. I just thought it was a cool word that God said to me. I didn't realize that there was actually a verse that says, do not despise small beginnings. And it's right here in Zechariah chapter 4. As God is rebuilding, in the context of rebuilding, a place of worship and God's presence with his people, a place that's meant to be ascending in a light to the nations, a place that's meant to be a display of his grace and his glory, that God would say, don't despise the day of small beginnings. And then he said, they will gather in that place and they will shout grace, grace to it. But there was one little phrase that was in it when I actually read, I Googled real fast and tried to figure out, oh, yeah, oh, Zechariah 4, totally knew that. And uh, I read the rest of the context. I was amazed that it was in the context of rebuilding this place of God's, of, of God's worship. And um, there was this one phrase that was in there, that not by might nor by power, says the Lord, but by my spirit. And what God hit me in that moment, even before we begun any of the restoration or renovation, is that what God wants to do in this place, he wants to do something that's, that's big enough, that's significant enough, that we can't explain it away by human ingenuity and great strategy or persuasive presentations. But God wants to move in, in miraculous ways in the hearts of his people and do a work in this little uh, small town in a forgotten place with a place that everyone gave up on for the display of his glory that we would look at and go, that is not by human strength or wise thinking, but by his spirit. And the only thing that's worth doing or being a part of is something that can only be explained by the miraculous presence of the spirit of God in us and through us. Amen? What I didn't realize is that Zechariah has a contemporary, another prophet named Haggai. The two of them are, at the, that are operating about the same time, encouraging God's people, don't give up on the work in front of you. Don't give up on the work in front of you. Don't be afraid. 
Don't be distracted by your own fears and insecurities. Don't give up. And the amazing thing is, is that in this whole process, COVID hits. We push pause on our building campaign. We wonder, are we supposed to still do this? We kind of step back a little bit and we're like, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to focus on those two buildings. That seems like a safe thing. We don't know where the economy's going. And we kind of let this building sit empty for a while. Uh, and just said, you know what, we'll, we'll weather out COVID and, 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 you know, maybe two years from now we'll uh, begin thinking about that again. Well, there's another gentleman in our church that uh, uh, was driving back and forth and God led him to, to go look for an old pastor friend of his that, or old pastor that, been, uh, that he enjoyed his teaching back in the day. And he found an old sermon and that sermon was from the prophet Haggai. And as he listened to that sermon from the prophet Haggai, uh, God was speaking to this, uh, uh, to this individual and said, uh, Haggai says to his people, that uh, you're building your own houses, you're taking care of yourself, but you're leaving my temple in neglect and empty. That uh, the glory of this new second house is going to be greater than the glory of the first. And, uh, and, and convicted on this, on this person, you're, you're building your own houses. You're remodeling and renovating homes, and yet you drive by every day this place that's meant to be for God's glory and worship, and it's sitting empty. And God uh, revealed that uh, a work that God had begun in his, in his life 40 years before, a word that God had spoken to him back then, was fulfilled in such a way that he felt like God was leading him to give beyond anything that he had ever given and gave what to us was a miraculous gift that was able to then complete this building. And as he sat me down to share the story of God speaking this word from Haggai, he's reading the word from Haggai, and as he gets through it, he's reading the, the beginning part. Uh, if you build, you're building your houses and you're neglecting my houses. And he's like, and then there's some stuff about Zerubbabel. And then it goes, and it's this part about the glory of the second house. And I just started weeping. Because what I realized is that the word that God was speaking through Haggai to this person 40 years ago, that God was parallel to the word that God spoke into my life 10 years ago. That neither of it, one of us had any clue what God was doing in e- e- either circumstance. But he was weaving together to accomplish his purposes for today. And that's the whole point of the book of Zechariah. And what I want us to hear for you today is that God is speaking into your life. God has a word for you, or maybe God spoke a word to you years ago or decades ago, and it may not make sense or it may not have come to pass yet. But we stay faithful in the moment. We do the next thing, and we keep listening, and we keep listening in, and then one day, 10, 40, 70 years later, we look back and go, oh, that's what God was doing. And this word to Zechariah that was be faithful in the present was also a word to Zechariah that you can have hope for your future. But you're not going to understand it. You're not going to get it. And what I really believe for us at Grace Monroe and for each of us in our own lives, the ways that God is shaping and forming and speaking to you, what he's leading you into, the places that he's calling you to take risks, to be vulnerable, maybe to give some things up or to walk away from some things or to walk into some things, to let go of some things, to, to surrender some things that are for this moment are but a glimpse of what God is actually doing. And it was amazing when we realized that the word God spoke years before was for that moment. I still believe we don't have a clue yet of what that acorn is really all about. That we've only begun to glimpse what actually God actually wants to do in this place with us, his people, for this generation and for the next and for the next, and for the next. And it won't be until we stand with God in his eternity and we look back and we see all the layers of the ways that his word has been fulfilled that can give us hope to trust him in the present no matter what we are facing today. What is God's word to you? What is he inviting you to hold on to right now? What glimpse of the future is he wanting to give you, no matter what you're facing in your life in the present? So I want to pray for that. And I want to invite God to speak. The eternal God who's eternally speaking. His word through his scriptures and through his spirit. 
the ways that he's restoring our lives, and the ways he's inviting us to be people of restoration in so many ways. So just close your eyes. Let's just ask God, even right now, as we move into worship. Lord Jesus, what do you want us to know? Lord, out loud, we confess, we acknowledge that you are, in fact, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, that you reign over everything in heaven and on earth, that you are our salvation, that, Jesus, you walk this earth in the flesh. We thank you for your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins and that you rose again from the dead to invite us into new life. And so we invite you, the voice of the living God, True Lord Jesus, will you speak? Will you silence any voice that's not from you? Any voice of accusation or guilt or shame, fear? What do you want us to know, Lord? You just call that to mind. So, Lord, even in this place this morning, will you root us in faith in this present, present moment? That you're with us, that you see us, that you love us. And, Lord, will you give us hope for the future? That you're not done with us yet. Help us to keep picking up acorns, whatever they may be. Your living word along the way. Help us to hold on to them. That your word spoken would be like seeds that get planted in our hearts. Rooted deep with space to grow and to bear fruit. Form us into your people. Conform us transform us into the image of Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit. Amen.